Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. If ever a crime sounded more like a movie script than a real-life thing that actually happened, this is the one. More than a dozen middle-class men who favored horn-rimmed glasses and get-rich-quick schemes over a life of hard work banded together in August 1963 to pull off the biggest train heist in international history. And a few of them got away with it. It's known as the Great Train Robbery. Depending on who's telling the story, it's either a masterfully planned and executed enterprise only unraveled thanks to cutting-edge detective work and state-of-the-art forensic science, or it's a heavily romanticized tale about the intersection of bungling robbers and crooked cops. But no matter which version you believe, there's no denying that the case was a really big deal, or as it's worded in one documentary. It's one of those watershed moments, that kind of hinge moment, if you like, where the momentum of life just shifts. In other words, it's a perfect case for crimes of the centuries. As long as trains have existed to haul valuables across the land, robbers have plotted to relieve trains of said valuables, so by 1963, train robberies were, of course, nothing new. Nor was the public's tendency to romanticize those robberies. It's odd, really, when you think about it. I mean, we fetishize crime in general, but train robberies in particular have always seemed to have a sort of built-in Robin Hood steal from the rich to give to the poor narrative that rarely has been warranted. I mean, in America, railroad robberies helped transform violent Wild West figures like Jesse James and Butch Cassidy into celebrity antiheroes. It's no doubt a relic of the railroad's predecessor, the stagecoach. Those were horse-drawn carriages covering enough ground to require pit stops to swap tired horses for fresh ones. They originated in England in the 13th century, though the first documented stagecoach route didn't start until 1610 and ran from Edinburgh to Leith. Today, that 2.3-mile spread takes eight minutes to travel by car, Back then, it took something like eight days by stagecoach. With the 1700s came the Gold State Coach, an eight-horse-drawn carriage used by the British royal family still used today at the coronation of every British monarch. This gaudy thing was commissioned in 1760 by King George III, cost more than $2 million in today's money, took two years to build, and also was literally covered in gold leaf. So as you can imagine, most people associated stagecoaches with obscene wealth. In the 1800s, banks commonly used stagecoaches to transport money, and robbers targeted those stagecoaches so frequently that plenty of the heists never even made the news. Just to give you a sense of how widespread stagecoach robberies were, a guy named R. Michael Wilson pulled together a complete record of robberies just in California from 1856 to 1913, 
and the tally was 457, more than eight a year, just in California. By the early 20th century, trains were fast replacing stagecoaches worldwide, but while the mode of transport was updated, what didn't change was the public's romantic notion of rich folk being knocked down a peg. We've been so fascinated by this narrative that in 1903, a 12-minute silent movie called The Great Train Robbery marked a milestone in filmmaking history by using then-unconventional techniques like composite editing and on-location scene shooting to tell the story of a group of bandits robbing a train. In other words, one of the first times filmmaking was used to tell a narrative story, the story chosen was of a train being robbed. Historian Dominic Sandbrook. People have this kind of Robin Hood fantasy, if you like, of the great train robbers as actually, you know, some sort of Ealing comedy enterprise, um, which of course it isn't. You know, these people are career criminals who are out, you know, to get what they can for themselves. So let's get into it. When 1963 started, U.S. President John F. Kennedy was a healthy 45-year-old who had just learned that his wife Jackie was pregnant with their third child. France and West Germany signed a treaty of cooperation to end four centuries of conflict. A quartet of skiffle musicians who'd called themselves the Quarrymen had changed their name to the Beatles and were about to release Please Please Me. And a petty criminal named Bruce Reynolds had decided to take things up a notch. Reynolds had been born in 1931 in central London to Thomas Richard, a union activist, and Dorothy Margaret, a nurse. Bruce was set to get a sibling when he was four years old, but his mother and the baby died in childbirth. His dad remarried, but Bruce had trouble getting along with the parental units, so he often stayed with one of his grandmothers instead. He dropped out of school when he was 14, but he had big dreams. He wanted a life of excitement, which wasn't easy to find for an uneducated, lower-class kid in the aftermath of World War II. And he wasn't alone. There are a generation of working-class men who were born at the beginning of the 1930s who are too young to have fought in the war. So they haven't had the experience of adventure that comes with the war, but also that, crucially, I think they haven't had the experience of national solidarity. So they don't perhaps have the stake. They don't have the loyalty. In fairness, Reynolds had tried to find adventure in law-abiding ways. As a teen, he had applied to the Royal Navy, but was rejected because of poor eyesight. Then he switched gears and aimed to become a foreign correspondent. But it seems he was dissuaded by actually having to, like, work for that. So the closest he came to reaching his journalism goal was becoming a clerk at the Daily Mail. But crime? Crime had two things going for it. It was exciting and fairly easy. This is Reynolds talking to a journalist. Crime was my life. I mean, uh, the, the excitement was there. That, that was, I think, more predominant than, than the money. His early crimes were mostly thefts with some minor residual assault in the mix. In 1952, he was sentenced to three years for breaking and entering. After his release, he graduated to stealing jewelry from fancy people's homes on the countryside. In 1957, he and a friend, Terry Hogan, were arrested for beating a bookmaker returning from Greyhound Racing with 500 pounds. That put him behind bars until 1960. This is the way I looked at it. I was an outlaw, that society didn't care for me, and I didn't particularly care for society. 
So he just kept climbing. Although Reynolds was only in his early thirties at the time, he'd already clocked up ten years behind bars. From a History Channel documentary. It was in jail that Reynolds learned valuable information from some of the most notorious thieves, fraudsters, and safe crackers. As Reynolds saw it, in the early sixties, crime was very much more finessing. One didn't sort of take abnormal chances. And of course, this was an area that perhaps I fitted in as being a younger man. I was quite prepared to take the chances that perhaps my mentors weren't, which, of course, is every young man's、uh, ambition is to be one of the big boys, and、uh, that's how you become one of the big boys by doing the things that the other people won't do. His opportunity arose in late November 1962. Reynolds tapped some friends, and together they robbed a payroll shipment at London Airport. This was a clear effort to join the big boy ranks. From a Channel Four secret history documentary, they dressed up as city businessmen and walked off with over sixty thousand pounds worth of wages. The planning and disguises caught the public mood, and the press lapped it up, naming them the Bowler Hat Gang. It's funny how legends form, though. I looked up the phrase "bowler hat gang" and saw no such label applied to the airport robbery. What I did find was a wire story that began, "Quote: Eight thugs dressed as bank tellers in derbies and dark suits today waylaid an airline payroll officer and two guards at London Airport, knocked them out with weighted hoses, and escaped in Jaguar racing cars with $175,000." The raid is the eighth of its kind this month in London, in a crime wave ranging from a train robbery to a raid on an armored car, and brings the total for the year to about sixty. End quote. The American dollar figure attached to the overall crime wave was nearly one million dollars at that point. And though the airport robbery wasn't the biggest thus far, it was the most brazen. Reporters described it as having been operated with military precision in broad daylight. Although the job netted sixty-two thousand pounds, a tidy sum at the time, Reynolds and his friends longed for an even bigger payday. They figured that bigger payday could come from a train heist. Though to pull it off, they'd need some of their trusted partners to be on board for an even riskier venture. Two of the friends who had helped in the airport raid were men named Douglas Gordon Goody and Ronald Christopher Edwards. Goody, who went by his middle name Gordon, was a couple of years older than Reynolds, having been born in London in 1929. He worked as a hairdresser, was dating a 19-year-old, and at age 32, still lived with his mom in Putney. Police had fingered him, rightly, in the previous payroll heist, but Goody's first trial ended with a hung jury, while a second jury acquitted him in June of 1963. Edwards, meanwhile, was better known by his nickname Buster. Unlike Goody, he hadn't been sought by officials in the previous heist, the airport one, but he had been part of it. In fact, he'd been part of little capers all over London for more than a decade. His first known crime was stealing sausages from a factory he worked on when he was a teen. Several of the players had worked with Reynolds before, but not all. Some were experienced thieves recruited by Reynolds specifically because they had robbed trains before, while he and his usual gang hadn't. The general plan was this: they would trick the train conductor to stop, 
commandeer the train, rob it, and then go hide at a nearby farm until the heat died down. Sounds simple enough, right? So if we're pretending this is a heist movie script, this is the part that lists the remaining players. Charlie Wilson, one of the moving spirits of the plot who raised the money to make it happen. Tommy Wisby, leader of the gang of small-time train robbers which was recruited to help because of their experience with mail trains. Jim Hussey, key strongman in the loading of the truck with the money. Lenny Field, who acted as a front for the purchase of Leatherslade Farm. John Wheater, the solicitor who arranged the purchase of Leatherslade Farm. Brian Field, his law clerk who introduced him to the gang and did the conveyancing. Bob Welsh, one of the heavies, recruited for his strength. Roger Cordry, who changed the signal from green to red with a glove. Roy James, who cut the telephone wires by the track and helped Cordray fix the signal and uncouple the coaches. Ronnie Biggs, the minder assigned to the driver he found for the gang, who was never identified. And Jimmy White, ex-paratrooper, in charge of supplies and the truck. Those are the players we know about, a mix of trusted confidants and sort of professional acquaintances, each of whom had his own specialty. But this list isn't complete. To this day, three remain officially unidentified. That's a big crew, a lot of people to orchestrate. I can't arrange a trip to New York with three friends because there are too many moving parts. So when you think about it, what these 16 or so men pulled off is really rather amazing, as you're about to hear. It's tough to know when the idea of the great train robbery of 1963 was born. In later interviews, Bruce Reynolds would claim he'd been masterminding this thing for years. I don't know if that's true, but there's no question that a lot of forethought went into the thing. We know that because two months before it happened, so around the same time Gordon Goody was being acquitted for his role in the Heathrow Airport payroll theft, members of Reynolds' crew bought the farm. Literally, not figuratively. The farm was called Leatherslade, and it was situated some 25 miles away from the planned heist location. The thinking was this. Payroll thefts were fine and good, but after it was split several ways, it only paid the bills for a few months. Reynolds wanted more. I thought, this is going to be the greatest moment in my life. This is everything as a criminal. You know, this is my Sistine Chapel. This is El Dorado. It's everything. So he set for himself the kind of stakes you see in the movies. The final job, the last hurrah, the monumental score. The idea began with a tiny bit of trivia. For years, it had been the practice of Scottish banks to send cash through the post by registered mail to London. While stagecoaches of yore might be hauling gold bars or crown jewels, overnight trains of the 60s were hauling cash. If that sounds stupid, that's because it is. This is Nick Russell Pavier, author of The Great Train Robbery, Crime of the Century. What? On a common sense level, seems total lunacy, i.e. transporting large sums of money through the night with no guards. For some reason, in large institutions which have been going for a long time. It sounds nuts to put tons of cash on an unguarded train, but Pavier said it was tradition. And sometimes people have a tough time breaking with tradition. The thieves had an inside guy who told them how the train worked, specifically that the only carriage they cared about was the one immediately behind the engine. That second carriage was known as the HVP coach, standing for high-valuable packages, not an STD. 
The other carriages had useless things like letters and junk mail, but the HVP coach had the dough. The thieves couldn't very well try to empty that carriage at any of its scheduled stops. There'd be way too much security to pull that off. And they couldn't simply hope to overpower the entire train staff. The 12 carriages had 72 postal workers staffing it. The thieves would be outnumbered. So instead, they decided they needed to get the train conductor to stop without suspecting there was anything odd about that stop. And then they'd need to uncouple the train between the second and third carriages so that the back 10 carriages were left behind, as were the majority of the workers. To pull this off, they tapped Roger Cordry, who was well-versed in electronics. Along the train tracks, there were intermittent signals alerting the conductor to keep going with a green light, slow down with a yellow, and stop at a red. You know how those work. A 58-year-old man named Jack Mills was a conductor, and he fully expected to see a green signal light at Sears Crossing, Ledburn, between Leighton Buzzard and Cheddington. But he didn't. This is Cordry talking to a journalist. Well, I placed a glove over the green bulb and connected Baptist to the red bulb. Just like that, and it stopped? That's, well, the train slowed down at the orange signal and drew up to us very slowly and stopped at the red signal. It's a surprisingly low-tech ruse. Use a glove to hide the green light and simple batteries to power up the red. But it worked. Mills and his second-in-command, a 26-year-old named David Whitby, saw the red and thought nothing of the unexpected stop because those things happened. Once the train stopped, several robbers climbed aboard. Three quickly set to work uncoupling the first two carriages from the back ten. Mills didn't know this, but he still figured out pretty quickly that something was amiss because he spotted a couple of strangers he deduced to be bandits. Instinctively, he started to fight. One of the men bashed him in the skull with a weighted iron bar called a kosh. Later, a journalist asked Mills if he saw who had hit him. No. No, you can only see their eyes. They all look the same to me. Did any of them speak to you? Yes. The accents can get tough to hear in this nearly 60-year-old recording, so I'll summarize. Mills said one of the robbers told him that if he hadn't fought with them, he wouldn't have been hurt. But Mills said it'd been his instinct to save his train, and anyway, he thought there were only two bandits at first. Now, of course, they're no different. How many do you think now that there were? Oh, it's divided about 20. They were everywhere. Both Mills and his second-in-command, Whitby, said that what struck them most about the operation was how highly organized everything seemed to be. They didn't speak to each other. No, no, it was like an army maneuver. Everybody knew the position. Well planned. Oh, yes, it must have been time to the second, but uh, I think there's railway men involved in it, the way they, the, the coaches are. Put the, the back and pipe on the stopper again. They did it in an expert way. Yes, it must have been real women. The thieves would later lean into this interpretation. It's the sexiest possible version of events, after all. That everything was timed to the second. Every possibility mapped out. Every move carefully orchestrated. Everything they had claimed, except for Mills' beating. That had been an accident. 
Reynolds insisted. It was a mistake that should never have happened. I'm not sure I totally buy that, simply based on the fact that Reynolds' previous crimes sometimes included assaults too. The truth is probably more along the lines of they knew someone might get hurt, but they hadn't intended the injuries to be quite so bad. And they certainly didn't like the brutality of that hit, tainting the Robin Hood narrative they tried to perpetuate in the heist aftermath. It's true that none of the thieves had been armed with guns, but the bottom line is that Kosh used to bash Mills did plenty of damage. Mills had a half-inch deep laceration on his skull, another quarter-inch cut near his right ear, plus additional deep cuts on the back of his head. He needed 14 stitches and spent two days in the hospital. Mills survived, obviously, but he was traumatized both physically and mentally and never fully recovered from his injuries. Whitby's sister is certain that her brother's premature death of a heart attack at age 34 was directly linked to the shock and trauma he endured in the heist at age 26. Now, after Mills had been bludgeoned and traumatized, he should have been left alone. But this is another element of the heist that didn't go quite as planned. It turned out that a guy named Ronnie Biggs had been tasked with bringing aboard a former train conductor to move the engine in HVP coach farther down the rail where the thieves had a Lodestar truck and a couple of Land Rovers waiting. But Biggs's pick, a still unidentified bloke known only by the nickname Stan, didn't know how to drive this specific kind of engine. So poor Mills was forced to do it with blood running down his face. The rest of the heist went like clockwork. The thieves stuck strictly to a 30-minute time limit, figuring that was all they had before someone from one of the other 10 carriages that they'd left behind noticed the engine and the HVP coach were missing. When the 30 minutes hit, the men had removed 120 out of 128 bags full of cash. Instead of pushing their luck to grab those final eight bags, they showed discipline and left them behind. Mills and Whippy were handcuffed to each other and told not to move for another 30 minutes. They were told a couple of the robbers were staying behind to keep watch, and if the men moved prematurely, they'd be killed. In reality, all the thieves left. According to their plans, what they expected to happen was that they would haul their loot to the farm they'd bought two months earlier, divvy everything up, and then wait a few days or even weeks for the heat to die down enough that they could slowly go their separate ways. But while a few things went awry during the Great Train robbery, it seemed like everything fell apart afterward when absolutely nothing went according to script. When Bruce Reynolds and his ragtag team of robbers arrived at Leather Slade Farm, they had no idea how much money they'd actually stolen. Turned out, it was a lot. It started off at two, three hundred thousand, and then was spiked uh, every two hours up by another quarter of a million. This is journalist Gerald Seymour. And so we went up to a million, a million and a half, million and three quarters, two million, two and a quarter million, two and a half million pounds. And that was a complete sensation. Two and a half million pounds, which at the time was the equivalent of seven million American dollars. Now, if you adjust for inflation, we're talking the equivalent of some $64 million in today's money. This is John Woolley, a former constable from the area of the heist. I know I was earning about £10 a week. 
and it really was difficult to, to you know, just imagine how much. It was two and a half tons of money in weight. Normally, the train wouldn't have been carrying so much, but the thieves had picked August 8, 1963, for a reason. It followed a UK banking holiday, so this specific train was hauling more than usual. Even so, they had no way of knowing just how much they were likely to steal. Remember, Reynolds' biggest heist before this ended with eight guys splitting 60,000 pounds. On one hand, the thieves were, of course, elated when they realized their haul. That amount of money divided 16 or 17 ways was huge, more than enough to set up each thief for the rest of his life. On the other hand, though, this was so much money that it completely quashed their hopes of just sitting tight while the news story died down. It wasn't going to die down. This story was destined to share front pages worldwide with news that Jack and Jackie Kennedy's thirdborn, a boy they named Patrick, arrived prematurely and died two days after being born. See, there was a reason I mentioned Jackie's pregnancy earlier. Reynolds knew as soon as they pulled up to the farm that committing the crime was one thing, getting away with it was going to be something else entirely. It's quite quiet, really, and uh, we could hear the the others singing in the back of the lorry, and they were singing it, It's the Good Life. And exactly as we pulled into the yard of the farm, it came over the radio, attention, attention, a train has been stopped, and you won't believe it, they've stolen the train. Still, the thieves were sure that they've thought ahead well enough to outsmart and outlast their pursuers from an ITV documentary. They believe they're secure in their lair. They've laid in enough supplies for weeks. It was part of their plan that they had got probably no more than 30 minutes, half an hour, from leaving the scene of the crime to being undercover, off the road, safe from prying eyes. But they'd made the bizarre choice of telegraphing that intent. If you remember, they told Mills and Whitby not to move for 30 minutes. Mills and Whitby relayed that to the police, and the police figured, shit, that must mean they're hiding within, oh, 30 miles of the heist. In fact, Leather Slade Farm was 27 miles from the scene of the crime. Not only that, but the thieves thinking that they would go unnoticed on some random chunk of farmland in the middle of nowhere was straight up flawed. Seymour, the journalist, again. People in the countryside are, frankly, more nosy. If you want to hide, if you don't want to be seen, if you don't want to arouse attention, then you stay in the city. The idea that you can go down into the countryside and nobody's going to notice you is, is a, a townie's mistake, and it costs them big time. Just four days after the robbery, someone reported suspicious activity at a local farmhouse. The thieves had been monitoring high-frequency radio dispatches and were tipped off in time to flee the farm before detectives arrived, but they'd had no time to cover their tracks. Constable Woolley spotted a trapdoor in the kitchen leading to a cellar. I could see that the cellar was absolutely chock-a-block with bulging sacks. And as the top flopped open, I could see parcel wrappers, banknote wrappers, consignment notes, all bearing the names of the famous High Street banks. Detectives scoured the farm for clues. 
They lifted multiple sets of fingerprints that were left behind, most famously on Monopoly game pieces, which the robbers had played to kill time using real money rather than the fake stuff that the game comes with. Investigators compared those fingerprints to known criminals they'd already suspected, like Gordon Goody, who had just been acquitted of the airport theft that police were sure he did. So it's not like authorities were starting completely clueless. Well, no, the police could guess who did it. Bruce Reynolds' son, Nick. Because there was only one gang in London who could have done it. They knew straight away, bloody Reynolds. That is, how did he do it? And how are we going to prove that he did it? Eight days after the heist, investigators found 30,000 pounds in a caravan belonging to robber Jimmy White. A bystander found another 100 grand in some woods, apparently dropped in someone's rush to flee the farm, which sparked a whole Willy Wonka, you could find the golden ticket type frenzy across the city. Charmian Biggs, who was married to robber Ron Biggs, recalled her husband unveiling his cut to her. He tipped the contents of the kit bags onto the floor and the notes were all done, done up in bundles. And they smelled horrible, very fusty. I was just anxious for him to get it out of the house as soon as possible. This was an unwelcome shock. The two had been together for five years, married for three of those, and their courtship had caused a rift between Charmian and her family, especially her father, who was headmaster at a small school and wanted his daughter to have nothing to do with a criminal. But Charmian was in love, and so the two eloped. I really trusted him. I had made him promise me when we were married that he would never uh, engage in any criminal activity ever again. I felt that all he really needed was a family life and people to love him and that he he had enough brains to get on in the world without resorting to crime. So when he dumped a clearly stolen bag full of money onto the ground, she knew trouble was afoot. What she couldn't have known, though, was that Biggs would be one of the first robbers identified. Some of the thieves were cautious enough to wear gloves their entire stay at Leather Slade Farm, but Biggs wasn't one of them. He apparently trusted the crew's plan that the farm would be burned to the ground and all the evidence would burn with it. Because of that, Biggs didn't wear gloves, and he was particularly fond of cats, and as his wife remembers, police lifted one of his prints on a saucer of milk he'd left out for some strays. Thirteen men were arrested by year's end. Most of them were actually involved in the robbery, though a few had the misfortune of simply knowing the robbers. One such guy was Bill Bull, who happened to be friends with robber Roger Cordry. After the lengthy trial the following year, 12 of the 13 men were convicted. The only defendant spared was a guy named John Daly, Bruce Reynolds' longtime friend and brother-in-law, who'd been arrested because his fingerprint was found on a Monopoly game piece. Now, you might have noticed his name wasn't on the official list of cohorts from earlier in the episode. In truth, Daly almost certainly had a role in the train heist, but he managed to get charges against him dropped by arguing that, hey, you can't convict me just because I once played Monopoly with my wife's brother. You can't prove that I played after the robbery at the farm. The judge agreed. Everyone else was convicted. Everyone who had been arrested, that is. Not everyone had been, 
Police knew, for example, that Bruce Reynolds was probably the ringleader, but he managed to leave the country with his wife and son. They also figured out after the farm raid that Buster Edwards, the guy who had been part of the payroll heist but had never been suspected in it, was part of Bruce Reynolds' gang. He and his wife lived with their toddler, Nicolette, under aliases in a 10-pound-a-week flat nearly a year before the train robbery. Any doubts officials might have had about the family's identity were cleared a few weeks later when a postcard from Italy arrived addressed to Buster, June, and Nikki. First names are usually a giveaway. Neighbors told police that the father figure of the trio had moved out just days before the train robbery, while the wife and daughter followed soon after. Once police got that tip, plus others that pointed to Edwards being buddies with Bruce Reynolds, they figured he was in on the robbery too. The Reynolds clan lived on the lam for years in Mexico until their cut of the dough ran out. The family came back to England, where Bruce Reynolds was finally arrested in 1969. Edwards had also avoided arrest initially by fleeing with his family to Mexico, though he loathed life on the run and returned with his wife and daughter voluntarily in 1966. Because he came back willingly, he was sentenced to just 15 years. Now, 15 years for robbery might sound reasonable, but most of the sentences were far heftier, typically around 30 years. Public sentiment had already kind of been on the robber's side to begin with, So when most of them were punished with such lengthy prison time, some people were shocked. Even police who worked the case, like Detective Harry Clement. I couldn't believe it. I looked around and my partner came forward and he said, yes, 25, 30. And we're all looking around and the the court was aghast. I mean, uh, to get a 25-year or 30-year, you've got to be a terrorist who've uh, who've put a, a bomb and killed many people. I think they was the heaviest that we had known at that time for ordinary criminals. But Justice Edmund Davis said, Let us clear out of the way any romantic notions. This is nothing less than a sordid crime of violence inspired by vast greed. Leniency would be evil. Meanwhile, two of the crew originally sentenced, Charles Wilson and Ron Biggs, managed to escape prison. Biggs disappeared during exercise time in 1965, got plastic surgery to alter his appearance, then fled with his wife and kids to Australia. There, they adopted pseudonyms and settled into a new life with new jobs for about five years until British authorities tracked him down. According to wife Charmian, she was a few hundred yards away from home. When all hell let loose and police cars came from everywhere and my car was pulled up and they dragged me out of it and they were waving guns and goodness knows what. And I was arrested. But Ron Biggs vanished. He moved to Brazil, leaving Charmian and his three children behind, not even returning when his son Nicky was killed in a car accident in 1971 at age 10. Ron and Charmian divorced in 1974. Eventually, he returned to Britain willingly, served some 10 years of his 30-year sentence, and then was released on compassionate grounds in ill health in 2009. He bounced in and out of hospitals for the next four years until his death in 2013, which, coincidentally, was the same year Bruce Reynolds also died. Both were in their 80s. Not all of the robbers lived such long lives, though. 
Buster Edwards, the one who had received a lighter sentence for turning himself in, served nine years, then sold flowers with his wife until he hanged himself at age 63. Charles Wilson, the other robber who had escaped prison aside from Biggs, was ultimately recaptured and served five years before he was released in 1978. In 1990, he was shot in his home in Marbella, Spain, at age 58. A book in 2020 posited that he was killed by a hitman after pissing off Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar. But, like I said, not everyone involved in the great train robbery was caught. Despite so many of the key players talking to media in their later years, they kept some details secret. In fact, as many as four robbers are still officially unidentified. They'd gone by the nicknames Ulsterman, Flossie, Alf Thomas, and Stan Agate. And that isn't the only mystery that remains. Of the 2.5 million pounds stolen that day in 1963, about 2 million pounds were never recovered. To research this story, I read a chunk of Nick Russell Pavier's The Great Train Robbery, Crime of the Century, skeptically watched multiple interviews with Bruce Reynolds and Ronnie Biggs, read contemporary news coverage, and also watched a couple of retrospective documentaries. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>